Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. This is the second half of our March show, our reviews edition. Lucy and Jeff discuss Adam Mackay's The Big Short. After last month's Vice discussion, this should be interesting. After that, we're off to the movies for our reviews. This month, Captain Marvel, Joy, Fisherman's Friends and Us. And by the way, listeners, when listening to us, just remember the Lego 2 hassle I had last month. We then briefly review what else we've been watching. And following that up with brief listener comments from Rich and Nick on what they've been watching. Finally, we finish with the big movie quiz. (laughs) Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff, and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. You know, lads, thinking back on last month's very popular discussion on Vice, I'm starting to relate to some of the characters in that movie. As I'm always pushing this podcast forward using whatever tactic, whether it's ethical or not, <laughs> to gain listeners and get great content, I see myself in the role as Dick Cheney. Graham, you've got the technical ability and the political savvy. You have to be Donald Rumsfeld. Neil? Hello, George W. Bush. <laughs> Hi, my name is Graham. My main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. Thinking about it, Jeff, you're right. You are like Dick Cheney, a complete and utter bastard. Hi, my name's Neil, and I just like films. George who? Very funny, Neil. Let's move on to the will of the people. No, not that Brexit nonsense, but the petition our listeners have put together for Graham to review Dragged Across Concrete. He should be. Mel, that is, not you, Graham. That petition's now up to 3,000 signatures. I'm not saying I don't believe you, Jeff. Actually, I am. I don't believe a word of this. Where is your proof? Show me the signatures. I thought I'd send it on to both of you. No. OK, sure, I'll forward it on to you again. And I'll include in it this time details of the People's March to ensure this viewing happens. <laughs> People's March for Grexit. I suppose this march will take place in Stroud. So a short stroll to the pub for a drink on your own. OK, Neil, stop fighting the will of the people. Everyone wants to hear what Graham thinks of Dragged Across Concrete. And you will be if you don't stop talking about it. And I suspect we already know what Graham will think of it. Yeah, OK, enough. I will do it, Jeff, but on one condition. What's that? You review a superhero movie next month, and the one I pick is Shazam. (laughs) That will teach you to organise this nonsense. You bastard. (laughs) You're forcing me to compromise. I'll have you know our politicians can't do that. OK, you win. More pain to go with having to watch... Captain Marvel for this podcast. I enjoyed watching you suffer with the current superhero movie, one you had to watch twice. Had to. Couldn't believe how bad it was the first time. (laughs) Oh, very funny. Before we start the show proper, just a brief word on our Oscar predictions last month. Graham got none right. Jeff got one. And I got two. Sports debate repeats itself as I win again. Gibson off. Graham... (laughs) Get a cloth and rub off some of that smugness from me, please. (laughs) Let's go to some music. Our first feature. Last month, the discussion with Lucy about Vice led to a lot of feedback and a very sore head for Jeff because of the two halves of lager he'd drunk that day. 
I was all set to leave him when he tried to get into the fountains in Trafalgar Square, shouting the freedom speech from Braveheart. For once, I took pity on him and got him back to Stroud. It won't happen again. Anyway, the debate ended with a promise that in this month's Lucy's Guide to the Movies section, we would talk about Adam Mackay's previous feature, The Big Short. Here is that discussion. Everyone, get to the blast shelters as I hand over to Jeff. Go for it, Jeff. Hi, welcome to the At The Flicks Lucy section of the show, Lucy's Guide to the Movies. Last month we had a really interesting discussion on Vice. I'm sure I won, but many people say I didn't. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And the challenge at the end of that was let's broaden the discussion and also bring in Adam McKay's The Big Short. So here with us are Josh and Lucy. Hi, guys. How are you doing? We're good. Watch it. So, and I'm ducking for cover as I ask this question. What are your thoughts on the big short? You know what? You'll be relieved to hear that we, we both liked it. So oh, that's a good stuff. Way. Yeah, right. um, I think Josh probably liked it more than me. And I mean, you can probably explain why you liked it more than me, I think. I have more of an interest in high finance and economics than you do. Well, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> Josh likes sales and Josh likes economics, whereas I, it's not really my kind of thing, really. So obviously it was nice for you to, to watch that and to get something out of it, I think. I'd, um, I think you mentioned when we were recording the last segment, the big short is something I'd intended to see when it came out. Not having the same level of film knowledge, I didn't know they were by the same director, so that was interesting. But I did enjoy the big short a lot more. I felt it was the style done well. Whereas, in my opinion, Vice is the style done poorly for reasons elaborated on some time ago. Yeah, yeah. I I think your view, Josh, was that the irreverence in Vice was like hitting something with a sledgehammer. So, you know, what was interesting is when you guys reviewed Green Book, I actually felt you vocalised my criticism of Vice better than I could. (laughs) (laughs) And listening... Uh, hear me out. The review you guys had on Greenberg was this was such a good film because it didn't hit you around the face with an important subject matter and treated the audience intelligently and said this is how dreadful it was. The review you guys gave on Greenberg is it was so powerful because it was not blunt. That was why I hated Vice. It was also why I liked The Big Short because although it made... Uh, use of breaking the fourth wall because guess what not everybody knows how short selling works and they had a bit of fun with how they explained it but they didn't bring gimmicks in when showing people getting repossessed they didn't make out that it was a game show and somebody had lost all their lives or (laughs) you know that they had a custard pie thrown in their face or any of that nonsense they explained something with a attractive actress in a bath you know this will make you listen because i've got champagne (laughs) and had a bit of fun with it because High finance does go over most people's heads, although I don't think Guantanamo Bay ever did. I think um, the Iraq war was actually better understood by the populace than the stock market crash. Yeah. No, no, I, th- I think that's fine. It's just a point I want to pick up on that, which I think really illustrates what you're saying. So you've got these characters who are more likable, and we'll touch on that in a moment, but there's a sequence in that film when you're going along with them, they're getting the money, and these two guys are high-fiving each other. And at that point, Brad Pitt almost stops the film in his character and says, you do realise what this means. You do realise that by making this money, you're crashing the American economy. You're putting all these people out of work. And it's like, you know, a moment of sobriety in the middle of this, which by that time is almost becoming a thriller. The 
political scientist would phrase the question of, are you making this money by crashing the American economy or is the American economy crashing and therefore you're making all of this money? The whole point of a credit default swap, quote unquote, casino banking, it is banks and financiers betting against one another. The really important scene was showing Standard and Poor uh, saying, well, what rating would you like? How much are you willing to pay? Or if we don't give you a AAA rating, then Moody's will. Hundreds of thousands of people were always going to be made homeless. The question was, was Lehman Brothers going to go out of business? Well, for playing an unethical game, then yeah, fair enough, serves them right. And if um, if I can put a bad guy out of business and make several million dollars en route, I'm not going to struggle to sleep over that. If I've gone out of my way to make sure people get evicted, that's very different and that I would consider unethical. That then comes down to the political discussion and you know what you see as, as, good, as good business and so on. But... Um, yeah, the fact that you turn around and say you shouldn't be you know, you shouldn't be celebrating about all of this. Mind you, he's also been complicit. He's set up the calls, he's he's orchestrated a trade while sitting in a pub and so forth. You know, if he's gonna point the finger at them, he can't act like there's no blood in his hand. In, no, uh, and, and and that's a very fair point. So Lucy, what are your thoughts? For me, it kind of it spoke to the kind of quote unquote ordinary people quite well. So all the scenes where you know you had Margot Robbie in a bathtub explaining how things worked, it worked for me because it was kind of like you got to keep my interest somehow, right? It's quite a boring topic, you know. Like I'm, I'm being quite controversial in saying this. Like a lot of people probably wouldn't really care about it. Like it was a big historical event. But when you start talking about money and Wall Street and the stock market, everyone's like, oh, God, this again, you know. So I think it was a really clever way of presenting it. This was what I wish Vice had been. I just thought it was genuinely funny, you know. It, it had the right amount of, like, classic McKay weird editing. It had all of that stuff, and it worked for me. And I was delighted because I remember we, we were sitting down. We were so nervous to actually put it on after this point. And we were thinking, oh, man, is this going to be like another two hours of, of rubbish? But it wasn't. You know, I think I learned a lot. I mean, it was it's, it's a heavy topic, but the acting was, you know, really, really good. Really love Christian Bale. Really love um, Ryan Gosling. I keep forgetting his name tonight, actually. <laughs> Ryan Gosling. I really liked his character as well because he's such a scumbag. Ryan Gosling isn't usually that much of a scumbag on screen, so that was quite cool to say, actually. But, yeah, I just, I just thought overall it was just a really good piece of filmmaking, honestly. Getting the characters confused, or am I the only, the only audience member who sympathises with a chap being f***ed in the head because his brother committed suicide? No, no, I did as well, and I, th I think that's because that character is really angry, he's in your face a lot, uh, and you get to know why underneath and this guilt that he's carrying with him, and I think that makes you warm to him in a strange way. Did you find that, Josh? Yeah, I mean, the, the reviews that I've since gone on to read or talking to others about the film, they're like, oh, he's the one that you don't like. I mean, I can't imagine how that would screw somebody up. And you see all the flashbacks to him on the call. You know, you spend your whole life thinking, I couldn't talk my brother out of taking his own life. I was the person that he called and I couldn't do anything. That, that would bugger me up. I don't know. I, don't know uh, I, think, I think the important point about that character, though, is that before his brother died, money meant everything to him. He he was, yeah. you know, he was a true capitalist, if there is such a thing. And what he did with his brother to try and talk him off the ledge was offering money. He was already yeah. conflicted about the whole process that he was involved in. And then he discovers that there's this huge, almost fraudulent neglect 
of basic standards of accounting and checking and and you know the the thing with standard and poor and uh, and moody's just showed that there was no oversight at all and the whole yeah. system was corrupt from top to bottom and i thought i lo- really really liked his character cuz he was like the everyman. Every time he ch- he talked to somebody, he couldn't believe what he was hearing. You know, he talked to those broker guys down in Miami, and he was going, these guys are idiots. And the audience are going, yeah, they are idiots. And then, you know, he goes and talks to the uh, woman who was having trouble with her eyes at the, at the credit uh, rating agency, and he says, but this is not your job. And he was right again. And it just went on and on and on. And in the end... You know, he made a fortune out of this. Well, I'm really pleased we're all on the same side on this one. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm a lot happier. I'll sleep easy tonight. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Yeah. Um, okay. So Adam McKay says these two films are part of his trilogy. Now, I'm assuming that his final part will have a Trump connection. What are your thoughts if he tries to tackle that? Yeah, that, that's a tough one, I think, because there's so much Trump satire now that, like, it's going to have to be really good if you're going to do it at all, you know? And I think, obviously, he's such a hated character, so you can probably get away with some of the stuff he pulls in Vice, but I would have to, you know, say something pretty intelligent and say some, like, really, like, clear-cut satire for me to enjoy it. I I don't know about you. Well, ultimately, Big Short is about something that happened that not many people understand, but where there is generally a common consensus of, you know, the credit crunch was not a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Um and Vice is about um you know the whole point of it is Cheney was always in the shadows he kept himself out of the limelight so he could be more powerful but he was never I've never heard anybody say I'm pro Cheney even ardent republicans and bush supporters. Mm-hmm. Trump on the other hand is a divisive figure whether we like it or not the man did win an election and we can you know talk about the the quirks of the electoral college on a on a separate podcast but he has got millions of supporters and most people don't actually find themselves confused as to how he got into office we all said at the time how on earth can this be happening but even during his first term trump's opponents have looked back and gone well this wasn't done effectively that wasn't done effectively this left the door open for a for a game show host to come in and round up people pretty easily here's why the Ross Belt was angry. I'm interested to know what McKay can offer that is new and insightful, or anybody could, for example. I think I think the Trump phenomena has already been understood, but it I think it I think he divides opinion. It's it's like the B word in this country. You know, the, the referendum ended up fifty two forty eight. So every you know, a big point made by those opposing Brexit is it was only a coin toss anyway. Um, so it is split down the middle. Mm-hmm. It's not like the Iraq war where there are very few people now who defend it um, or, or, or so on. So I'm, I'm curious to see what, what, what he can do and if it is Trump or if it will be something else. You mentioned the work he's doing with Murdoch, you know, something around Fox News mm. uh, could be interesting or, or mm-hmm. InfoWars. Maybe he won't Ooh, go InfoWars would be good, wouldn't it? Yeah, <laughs> maybe he won't go for Trump because it's the, it's the obvious choice. You yeah. know, the, the credit crunch, um, the, the whole big short was about somebody in the shadows of the credit crunch. It wasn't actually in and of itself about JP Morgan and, and Goldman and so forth. Um, same as Vice wasn't a film about the Bush administration. It was a film about Cheney. So I'm interested to see what the third instalment is. I think the, the big problem with Trump is he's such an emotive figure for his opponents 
what we actually need is clarity and calm analysis rather than, you know, and I'm very openly anti-Trump, mm -hmm. but I do find a lot of the people that screech at him don't make much of a case for me. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that, that's a good point. And I feel like his supporters would have a lot of ammunition if it went down the vice route. Yes. Because they just, you know, kind of slag it off the way I slagged off vice, I guess. Yeah. So it's, it's a dangerous subject, I think, to touch. And, you know, you need to do it properly if you want to make a... a a proper impact on the audience. Yeah, no, no, I, I take your point. And particularly picking up on that point there about the big short deals with the credit crunch, but deals with an area that we didn't really know about. I mean, I didn't know about that aspect of it before the film, whereas, Josh, you're right, I knew about, like, Lehman Brothers, the big banks and all this sort of stuff. So it shone a light on something I didn't know. And if you were to do that with Trump, what could you shine a light on that we don't already know? Yeah, it's not going to be Trump. I, uh, I mean, it could be religion for a winner. Trump has been done to death, yeah. really. I wish. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> metaphorically. And it won't happen until Mueller's investigation is... Yeah, uh, really attacking him while he's still president and he's still got all his supporters is just pointless. Nothing yeah. that, a, that a, you know dozens and dozens of late-night TV hosts haven't done already. They've eviscerated him completely to the more educated uh, liberal crowd in America. So it, it'd be really, if he did a, a film about Trump, he'd be just piling on really nothing nothing new nothing original you could pick guns for example oh gun control Moving, in america and and what and well he could just pick the sale of guns to all these places yeah but then he's moving so self-perpetuating yeah it? He's moving into really uh, Michael Moore territory then. And, yeah. that's what I was and that he's going to steer true. clear of that. That's, that's true. true. No. Yeah, no, no, that's true. Yeah. Good point. So, final point for both of you to answer one at a time. If you could give advice to Adam McKay, what would it be? <laughs> Who wants to go first? You go first. I would say if you strongly believe in your message, think ahead of how your delivery could be against you. I think. Um, mm -hmm. When I came out of Vice, I said I'm very anti-Cheney, and I came away hating the film. So imagine what a you know what a staunch Bush supporter would say. Yeah, um, you know, I'm kind of biased because I don't like Anchorman either. So I guess I'm going. No, I, I, actually, I'm with you on that. I don't like Anchorman. Anchorman's so, all right. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. I like Anchorman. Thank yeah. you, Lucy. Yeah. Yes, the lunch. <laughs> it's now three two. Three, so three, you're two. wrong. Yeah, both wrong. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, if you know if he's able to make a very successful career by being a divisive filmmaker, then mm -hmm. you know the joke's on me if I don't get it. Okay, Lucy, your view. What would advice would you give him? Yeah, so I think you know it's important to know your subject and to know your audience, and by that I mean you know think about is it appropriate to joke about this or is it is it appropriate to take a softer approach? Obviously, you know, I've banged on about the Guantanamo Bay restaurant scene countless times, but I just found that incredibly distasteful personally. So I just think it's it's important for him to really consider the kind of message that he's putting out there and the way that he delivers it. The Big Short was the perfect way to portray the subject at hand, I thought. And if he'd approached, like, Vice in a similar way, maybe I would have liked it a bit better. But, yeah, it was hard for me to believe it was the same filmmaker, actually, aside from the obvious, like, fourth wall breaking and, like, you know, editing and stuff. If it wasn't for that, you know, I thought the big short was far superior. But, yeah, it's just about dealing with things appropriately, I guess. You know, I, I don't dislike the guy. You know, I love Anchorman. You know, I, I think it's great. And I, I, I actually like Step Brothers as well, which is <laughs> controversial because it's a bit crap. But it, it's, it's, it's a, a good crap. sort of like, you know, it's one of those like, you know, you, you kind of have a love-hate relationship with it. 
because it's like cheesy comedy. That's terrible. Um, but yeah, no, I just good luck doing right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's all right, it's Neil, he's got no taste in comedy anyway. (laughs) No, that was awful. Okay, let's wrap this up. Uh, I'd just like to say two things. One, it's a real pleasure talking about everybody with a film that we agree, although, you know, it's also fun (laughs) to talk about things we disagree on. And two, clearly, we need to limit the amount we drink before our discussions. Yeah. Oh, you I certainly do. Yeah. (laughs) So, Josh, Lucy, it's been great talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I enjoyed guesting. Thank you, and I hope you will again. Cheers, then. Thank you. Bye. Cheers, bye. bye. Wow, that didn't go as I expected. Excellent discussion. And thank you, Lucy and Josh, as always. I'm sure it's only a matter of time before Lucy and Jeff return to talking about horror films I have never heard of and certainly wouldn't watch. OK, time for some music and our review section. Dad and I found another song last night. What's that then? Nelson's Blood. Love song, is it? Four points of lager, please. We've got Gaisdale Bishop's Finger. Do we know where it's been? <laughs> no, but I've got a pretty good idea where he could stick it. We're on a stack. <laughs> Would you mind backing up? My friend's only just passed this test. It's a one-way street. You're going to have to back up. Poor Tosser. What's a Tosser? I thought Ladies and gentlemen, we're the fisherman's friends. Oh, this is bloody talk. No, no, I want these guys sign up to Duke Manager. What kind of music were they singing? The rock and roll of 1752. The bottom line is, you've got a unique sound. And we believe we can help you get it released by a major label. You need to push these guys overboard and let them sink without a trace. I've heard them sing with genuine passion about something we've all lost. You're singing in front of some big players here. It could be more important than that. Save a life. Doesn't that clip make you want to gather your nets and go fishing and singing off the coast of Cornwall? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you can. As the Brexiteers said, there was no fishing off Cornwall anymore. Jeff, this is a feel-good romantic comedy. Stop bringing bloody politics into it. Okay, in this instance, I'll agree to do that. Although, rather than say this is a romantic comedy, I would say it's almost a redemption movie about a workaholic music promoter called Danny, played by Daniel Mays. Now, Danny has come to Port Isaac in Cornwall with his work partners for a stag do. There they hear the local fishermen sing sea shanties at the harbour. As this is going on, Danny is challenged by his boss, Troy, Noel Clark, to sign the local fisherman for a record deal. And as part of the bet, he has to stay in Port Isaac until he does so. Now, to the others, this is a great stag do joke and they believe Danny will fail. For Danny, it becomes a mission when he starts to believe in the potential of the heartfelt singing, and also he begins to fall in love with the daughter of one of the fishermen. Neil, did their singing, and indeed the film, charm you? Definitely. I mean, charming, charming, and charming, really. Uh, Feel good movie, life in a Cornish village, standard fare. Person in the uh, big city goes down to countryside and falls in love with it and some of the people as well. Definitely entertaining rom com, typical Sunday evening fare. I would agree. It is very formula. You know, it's sort of in line with the British romantic comedies we've had over the last couple of years. It's from the Finding Your Feet team that had a huge hit. Last year, and it 
channels it towards a particular older demographic audience. So I can understand why you loved it. I was the uh, youngest person in the cinema by yeah. some distance, in fact. <laughs> People kept pointing at us and said, who let those kids in? A warm glow of a movie. And I think it sort of you take it in that spirit. It's yeah. just great, great fun. Graham? Yeah, I liked it. I, I thought it was very low-key, uh, very British romantic comedy. Very much, I felt, in the style of the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. Uh, very much like that. That had the back drop of Guernsey, which was actually Cornwall as well. But was we it? Won't go into <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, they, they filmed the whole thing in Cornwall. <laughs> uh, and here we have Cornwall again providing the backdrop. So I thought that was good. Good story with a few twists. Yeah, fine, functional, does what it says on the tin. Not really my cup of tea, though. I wasn't bored, you know. No, no. no. So it was, it was, it was charming. Not charming in the way I thought Dan and Ollie was. That was no, no. exceptional yeah. and charming. I thought this was just charming. I just thought it was good. Yeah. Okay, and I think one of the reasons for that charm are the performances that lift it up above what we would normally come to expect. Yes. What did you guys think of those performances? Um, well, James Purfoy, he's the standout for me. He played extremely well. He Obviously, his his wife ran off with somebody else, has to bring up with his daughter on his own, and then some bloke from London comes down and starts um, getting on with her. So you can sort of understand his irritation at him. Yeah, because it was a sort of history repeating itself, wasn't it? Uh, his wife had run off and he had to bring up the daughter on his own. Then the daughter marries some wastrel. Oh, he yes, runs of course. off from, and she has from to bring, a rival village. From a rival village, which is just like... <laughs> from Cornwall, they're always... Yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, but yeah, Daniel um, Mays, who played that lead role, yes. I think, he's not a conventional leading ro romantic actor, And I is he? really like that. I really like that. I thought he's not the sort of chiselled chin, handsome bloke. But it, him, the, the romance between him and Tuppence Middleton is, is really quite good. I... I yeah. was believable, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, and I think because, particularly with Daniel Mays, oh, he's a great actor anyway. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen the film The Firm, the remake of yeah. The Firm, when he plays mm. the villain in that. He's great, but he's also in such things as Made in Dagenham. Just a, a really believable actor. And you put an actor with those looks into a romantic comedy, yeah. you believe and you go with this guy. You know, he's there as the ass end of a joke that's gone yes. wrong, but he starts to believe in it. And you believe with him. And I think that's a real power and a testament to the acting. And and playing against, as you were saying, Neil, James Purfoy, who's this grumpy, miserable guy. These are quality actors yes. in there. And I, I mean, I think that, the, the older fishermen were all entertaining. They did their, they did well. Um, Maggie Steed, Jane Purfoy's um, mother, who was uh, a stalwart of this kind of work, they were the pie in the sky, jam and Jerusalem, shine on Harvey Moon. She's perfect in this sort of role, and she did well. All of them, everybody, even Sam Swainsbury is the pub owner. Just everything looked right, really. They they picked the picked the actors very well. I I also like that the you know the the romantic uh, interest. Uh, the girl, uh, Tuppence, wasn't just set on a pedestal. You know, she had a kid, she'd had a bad relationship, she um, was an independent woman, and she knew more about music than I the guy in the bit. music that industry. Was, that was cleverly done, wasn't yes. it? The, um, the uh, pub quiz, yeah. where, you, where actually she answered all the music questions, and yeah. he says, going, oh, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. I, I only work in this industry. I don't know anything about it, yeah. <laughs> I like that. And the baddies were the baddies. I mean, Noel Clark, I thought, was a bit over. 
over the top. But no, um, I, I don't. I disagree with that. Actually, I he, thought. Well, he irritated me, but then yeah, well, somebody in the music go. music business yeah. of that kind yeah. probably would anyway. To, to you, I must be over the top then. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> I thought so. But Noel Clark, I mean, a writer, director in his own right, as well as an actor. I thought it was a thankless role, but I thought he made it his own. I uh, and again, it resonated. I mean, this is the thing. You've got yeah. this sort of film. And you get a great cast, you can do wonders with it. Yeah. And that's what that's they've right. done. And it was a good story. You know, yes. it, it was boy meets girl, boy yeah. loses girl, boy finds girl again. But I thought they had enough twists and turns in it and, and the, the, the singing group and him getting the, the record contract and all of that. It, it followed a nice pattern and it was just, you know, I smiled the whole way through it. I thought it was good. I love the running gag of the, uh, oh, we don't have a parking problem here when the tide comes in. <laughs> Yes. Repeatedly. I thought that was very funny. So we all like the cast. Now, we've got a relatively new director here, Chris Fogin, who spent most of his career as an assistant director in such films as At World's End. He's come in. Do you think he works as an actor's director? I think so. I mean, it kept it running. It's a good film of of that kind. I think he did a fine job. I thought he was excellent. Uh, I mean, a good workmanlike direction. I mean, he kept it moving. Uh, the difficult shots at sea in the trawler and when the stag do when they were out on the paddle boards. thought all that was good. And he got good performances out of and the I, actors. I think that's the key thing yeah. here. I think, yeah, the scene in the pub for me was uh, really outstanding, you know, because you suddenly got that oh, it's a noisy London pub and these guys start singing. Well, most people would usually go, oh, God, we got some drunks in here. <laughs> well, but, yeah, yeah, they were. They were very drunk. <laughs> but th- suddenly the, the heads pop up and they go, hang on a minute, this is actually very, very good. And what are they singing? And they had that really but, nice bit. I mean, as we've seen from a recent event we've attended with a director giving a talk, if you don't get the actors on side, you can have all hell breaking loose around you. Yeah. And this is an ensemble piece. If these actors don't gel together, yeah. it's going to fall apart. And there were a lot of them, weren't they? Yeah, All and a lot of quality the, actors. Key to it as well. Yeah. Full marks to Chris Foggin. I think he did. Yeah, he had a lot of things to juggle as well. You know, he had the the sort of the romantic element of it, the home life, the the, the father daughter dynamic, the the new lover sparking off against the father and then the father not being so sure about the where he went to, yeah industry, the music industry the, that yeah. was that was all well done i mean little predictable at the end but hey it's a rom-com well not only is it a rom-com i mean thing with these british romantic comedies which are very much locale set i mean you're talking films like the film monty brassed off they are you've got an outsider coming into that environment he's holding something back from them ultimately he gets charmed by the community. They find out what he's holding back. They fall out. Then they make up again at yeah. the end. That's the way these things work. In, a, in essence, and you would know more about this than me, Neil, but this is an extension of the Ealing comedy up to modern day. <laughs> would you say that? <laughs> yeah. The, no, you love the Ealing comedies. I hate them. So There's, there's a huge market for, for people older than us and a lot of money, and they can make a lot of money. Every year they come up with a really good... One of these, uh, every few months almost. Um, we've had Stan and Ollie, the Potato Peel Pie Society. And, and they generally put them out in the winter so that the old people can go to the cinemas rather than die at home. So they've got somewhere warm and, you know, they can watch a movie. And, and easier access for the ambulance men. Easier <laughs> access to the ambulance and defibrillators and all that sort of stuff, really. Um, so 
This, yeah, yeah. this is our future, Neil, he's describing, <laughs> yeah. dying in it the is, cinema. Yeah. So you've got the setup as I described, and, the, and this film very much plays to that formula. But you've got a great cast, you've got a great sense of humour. But I'm saying, I mean, you had that pub scene, you had some great jokes, you know, where they're all going down to the bus, remember, wearing the sunglasses? Yeah, that, sunglasses. that reservoir sea dogs? Yeah, uh, uh, that was a great line, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and all of that stuff. Do you agree so, that this, as a romantic comedy, doesn't stretch itself outside the norm, but it is good fun? Yeah. Anything yeah. else you want to add on script? We seem to be quite praising this quite a lot, but I thought the script... Because it's good. It is good. It is good. No, I'm not... I'm not I mean, I'm it's just a true think, story. And it's a true story. And they built a script around it. No, no, no. No, the true story is the song, that the songs that went into the charts, the, yes. and they built a whole script around it. But there is the true story of these fishermen's friends who did get into the charts. Yeah. Well, I thought the script was a wee bit padded. A wee, there were a couple of little problems I had with the script. Go on, then. I think the constant referencing back to history got up on my nerves. Yeah, they hated the people from Padstow because they <laughs> press-ganged them in the well, 1750s. Don't we all? Right. Move on. I did Never, not. ever go to Bodmin Moor on Halloween. <laughs> that is not a joke. I was there once, trust me. I, I got my hair went grey over it. Yeah. I, I did like the joke about the um, what, what are these sea shanties? Whether the rock and roll from seventeen fifty two. Yeah, and which is a great line, but they kept banging on about history. You know, yeah, yeah they said. They hate the people from Padstow because of the press There gang. is quite a lot of history yeah. back there, though. Yeah. And they said, well, my view was, no, Jim, disliked the bloke in the pub because his son had left Tuppence and wasn't helping to look after their daughter. I mean, he's a dick in the here and now. The fact that his ancestors were dicks as well it doesn't drive the story forward. In the wedding reception yeah, scene could have gone. Yeah, that was a bit lame. Yeah, and it just made them look bad, and I didn't like that. And the fact that they started with that song, whether that was true or not, um, or well, they it, just thought it would be sang... a laugh, no, but it was I a completely they... inappropriate song, and only half of them there. I mean, <laughs> I disagree. I've disrailed this, haven't I? Now? No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I disagree with what you're saying here, because the point of these sort of films is to build this insular community that people want to take part in. So, you know, the Daniel Mays character ultimately... That's where he wants to spend the rest of his life. You know, one of the characters in the film dies, and he dies perfectly. It's a sunset going it was, down. It was a great He's death scene. Yeah. yeah, we'd and, all like to go like that. Yes. Yeah. So the whole thing around around that, it's a perfect, almost paradise as a transition to wherever. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was really good. So this whole business of this is what the community looks like, they're out of place in the wedding, all for me, all fitted together. I thought yeah, that right. was good. Yeah. I, I thought that the death scene was so well done. Yes, I didn't awesome. need the burial at sea bit. I thought that just They didn't on. bury him at sea. Well, they, they were, all went out to sea together. And yeah, and they, they threw, threw something into, into the, the water, water. Which, which actually they do for fishermen. Yeah. But I didn't so need that. So you didn't like reality then, Graham? No. Is that what you're saying? No. No, no. no. stuff it then. Yes. So if they'd taken the body, thrown it into the water, and sharks so, would have eaten it, that, that would have been, been fine for that, you. That would so, be a in, horror movie then. So in terms of cinematography, as it's a nostalgic look at a fishing village. It's a working village, so there's not. it's not exactly a picturesque place. And the working London, which isn't wasn't particular, was never particularly picturesque either. So, yeah, it's concrete jungle yeah. or... Do you, do you, do you not, do you not think though, Neil, the London they showed is bears no relation to the London of reality? Well, I, I'm not sure actually. I, yeah. What was your problem Why? with London? 
you never really got a sense of London as a as a working place in this film. Yeah, oh, okay. So mm. if you were selling this film abroad, I would be interested to see, you know, any of our listeners listening to this from other countries, what would your view of London be from watching I, this film? I think it was more likely the um the the people in London than than the actual place. I don't think it, I don't think London counted very much for the film. It, the other reason I like the the London scene and I think it was quite important was that Cornwall was very traditional England, you know, that was all old white people. Yeah, that's <laughs> but, yeah, I, but I agree. Uh, London was it's very multiracial, cosmo- yeah. was multiracial, yes, very it's... cosmopolitan, and and they appealed to that audience. Yeah, so yeah. I think that the music transcended the audiences. Yeah, so there is that, and I think what's coming out here as well. We, we're saying it's a particular film. It's meant for an older generation in the UK, and it would be very interesting to see how this travels abroad the locales like Spain and Eastern Europe, Australia, the Brits in America, they would love this film. Yeah, the Canadians would probably love this as well, yes. very much so. so. So let's talk about something that this film is really centred on, the music. Yeah. Some great she- sea shanties. Oh, say that after a few drinks, Neil, eh? Yeah. Many, of course, were a touch ribald. Um, well, touch ri- what? Ribald. Oh, rude. Oh, right, OK. Uh, very rude, in fact. Um, and the scene in the wedding um, was okay. That was quite funny, but it was a bit silly, really. Yes, wasn't it? it was a bit silly um, in terms of the it, and the. It was great to hear two four six eight motorway as they're going down the uh, road to London, well, which was quite nice. Well, and that, they played out with uh, Fishman's Blues by the Water Boys, one of my favourites. Right. One oh, of right. my favourites. But, yeah. but also, when, which is quite appropriate. And again, yes. it, it shows the age this film is being aimed at. You've got the sea shanties on one hand, but also you've got an area of music. We've all just mentioned 2468 Motorway. You've got Rock Your Boat from Hughes Corporation. So that is a very 70s-centric 40 years ago. So, again, it's aiming for that audience, and I I, I thought that was really good. But I would love to give a shout-out here for Ruby Christie's music because you've got a very difficult situation here. You've got to do an instrumental music score that's needed on occasions, but it's got to balance against those sea shanties. Yeah. So what Christie has done is toned it down. It's a very light, very melodic score, and I think it's tremendous. I think yeah, it's one of the I, best scores I, I, of the year. I thought it was really good because the, the then the sea shanties pop up yeah. out of the background, you know, so they really had this punch because you got this lovely maled, melodic thing, and, and especially when um, the little daughter's around and the girlfriend... Uh, Tuppence, very, very melodic. And then you get the the men singing the sea shanties, and it really does pop. So, Neil, have we had any listener comments on this? Yes, uh, not everyone agrees with our view of the film. Here's what Phil Foster had to say. This is the sort of film that will rely on its British charm and its music to draw in an audience. Unfortunately, I found the opening two-thirds to be incredibly patchy and the final third to be virtually unbearable. (laughs) The music has its moments and James Purfoy and Tuppence Middleton are the pick of the cast, but they can't save the film from mawkishness. Wow. Good word. I, I mean, it's it's fun. I'm not sure how many times I'd see it. As you say, the the standout is the. Um, I mean, they, they they all roll into one. These films, don't they? They're, they're they all pretty much the same. Yeah. It's the you know Guernsey or it's uh, the Guernsey one is different. No, no, I, Yorkshire I, no, no, or no, 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 it's no, the, the Guernsey. You, you keep mentioning the um, Guernsey Literary Potato yeah, Society. That, that's not the case because that isn't 
a comedy. That is a much more dramatic piece. I think that's something slightly different. Yeah, because yeah, okay. it's set just at the end of the at, war. At the end of the war, and mm. it involves a, a death of major characters yes. as well. Yes, uh, but it's definitely aimed at the same audience, though. Yes, to a certain extent, but I just no, I don't think this fits in with like the brass. This is very much in the brass off full Monty yes, mold, definitely. And I don't think the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society is. But Phil, he's a lot younger than us. Anyway, let's move on. Let's sum up, lads. Graham. Well, I thought it was okay. Not great. Um, I mean, I did have some problems, but I thought it was better than Phil's review. Uh, I thought the three central characters, Mays, Middleton and Purfoy, were really good. Uh, The rest of the cast, I've forgotten them already. I did say rom-coms are not my thing, um, but if you like rom-coms and you're over 80, this would be brilliant. <laughs> While you're looking I thought, at me, Graham. <laughs> I thought it just was, a glance at you, Jeff. Just I thought glance. it was just fun, charming rom-com and, and advert for Cornwall and the Royal National Lifeboat Institution. It's it's OK. I mean, it's... it's yeah, I don't think it, it's ever going to warrant anything more. I'm not sure it is the uh, the best film of the month. It's a great Sunday afternoon film. Yes. If you got your granny over. Yes. She'd love it. Yeah, indeed. So if you like Fisherman's Friends, here are some other movies that you might find interesting. Local Hero, which you've already mentioned, um, is by far and away the better better than of all of these things. Uh, Guernsey Literary Potato Peel Pie Society is very good. Swimming with Men. And a huge number of these tourist information and nostalgia local history rom-coms that we do so well. Okay, over to Jeff now, who's going to talk with our regular contributor, Lucy, about the movie that they've both been really hyping up, which (laughs) is uh, the follow-up to Get Out, which is called Us. And please be aware, they will be discussing this in detail, uh, so this will be a very heavy, uh, spoiler-intensive segment. Thank you, Graham. Yes, it will be full of spoilers, so if you haven't seen the film, I would skip this chapter and come back to it later. That, of course, doesn't apply to Graham and Neil, because they're (laughs) too chicken shit to see it in the first place. (laughs) Yeah, that's Uh, true. 
Not, <laughs> not, not bothered admitting it. Very high level on the synopsis. It starts in 1986. A young girl separates off from her family, wanders into a hall of mirrors where she sees a very strange double of herself. The action then cuts forward over 30 years to modern day. That girl has now grown up. She is now a mother herself of two children. She's off with her husband to near Santa Cruz for a holiday. And when they're there, one night, they look outside and there's a family of four exact duplicates of them all dressed in red. What do they want? What are they there for? I can assure you, it's fairly horrific. Lucy, what did you think of us? So those of you who follow me on Twitter probably saw my initial reaction to this, which was, I need time to think. <laughs> and now I've had that time, I actually thought it was a pretty strong film. Very difficult to follow up Get Out in the way that he did. Obviously, that was Oscar winning, that was perfect, that was really, really good. But this was, I was genuinely scared. I have no problem admitting that I was scared through a lot of this film. And, and that is something that, you know, a horror film should do so good <laughs> you know if you watch as much horror as i do often you can sort of become desensitized but this was genuinely creepy there's a few unanswered questions but fundamentally i thought it was great what are your initial thoughts uh, i think it's really good i've not seen get out so that is now high on my list jordan peele is a very assured filmmaker it reminded me a lot of the early john carpenters with the use of steady cam constant movement of the camera there are moments in this film where the tension really racks up which i really liked I think it's slightly overlong, and I think the denouement, which we're going to be talking about at length, let me down a bit, because the moment you examine it, that falls apart. But that aside, the horror, the study of modern American society, I thought was excellent, and this guy is a real filmmaker to watch. Yeah, I totally agree. What did you think on the performances? Oh, well, they, they were fantastic. Like, honestly, it's hard enough to sort of portray one character, let alone two. And you're fundamentally doing two because the the doppelgangers or the tethered, as they're known, are very different characters. You know, they have very different personalities, very different. Their movements were creepy. And certainly Lupita Nyong'o, she was absolutely fantastic. I mean, her, her double was so scary. It, it all revolves around her and her experience. That performance was a standout one for me. Thinking about that on the way home, just, oh, wow, just stuck with me. It's so good. It was an amazing performance, and vocally as well, the way... Because what happens oh. is that with these other characters, most of them can't speak, they just grunt. But her doppelganger, Red, can speak after a fashion. It's a very odd fashion. I, I watched an interview with her, and she said it's based on an actual physical vocal condition, uh, an illness that people can get, and she based it on that. And I was stunned when I heard her doing it live in a short clip of an interview I watched. Didn't inspire you to watch the film though, did it? Scared the hell out of me when she suddenly dropped into that voice, and I thought, wow, I don't think I could take two hours of that. But the others as well, Lucy, I thought that the children as well were, were great oh, okay. on both sides, you know, the if almost if you like the plus and the negative side of each i thought they were were tremendous yeah no i totally agree certainly the the young son and, and his doppelganger you know obviously he's burnt he's disfigured he has the most like spider like almost like marionette kind yes. of movements that really freaked me out uh that was really creepy and i love the way that obviously full of spoilers just a, a advance warning once again the way that he can control that doppelganger as well when he like makes him go back into the fire yes was so clever like I knew what he was doing and that entire scene was just so well put together teenage girl was great as well but I feel like her doppelganger appeared less I think you know I think it had a lot less she had a lot less screen time and there's nothing wrong with that because she was still pretty creepy the, <laughs> like the, the sunken eyes 
everything. Yeah, her, her expression uh, and when she was chasing them around was uh, just amazing. But yeah, no, no, I thought that was good. And it's interesting you speak about the way he walked him back into the fire. And let, let's go into the themes. And the main theme of this film, there's a point where these two families confront each other for the first time in the house. And mm-hmm. so you've got the modern American family and you've got this doppelganger family of which only one can really speak. Mm-hmm. And she screams at them, who are you? And they say, we're Americans. And there it is in a nutshell. This is what Jordan Peele is trying to do. This is Trump's America, if you like. This is modern America, where you've yeah. got, you're either on one side or the other. Neither side understands the other. Either mm-hmm. side would kill the other. You know, we, we're getting close to that. And I thought Peele captured that brilliantly. I love the whole Hands Across America campaign and all that stuff to sort of symbolise unity, but obviously was turned on its head to see to see unity in its darkest form as well. Unity is not always a positive thing. You know, if you have many, many people supporting a bad cause, terrible things can happen. And I just thought that was such a clever, like, motif all the way through. That was really clever. Do you know, that really worried me in the beginning. I, I'd started on edge with this film, on, on not in a horror edge, not like the two wusses in the room with me. Thanks. Uh, yeah, but an edge of, it cuts on that TV. And by the way, did you notice that one of the video cassettes alongside it was Chud? which is all about <laughs> underground dwellers, which is brilliant, film. And uh, so you've got that to one side. And it's holding on this TV. So you're trying to work out. So you know it's not set in the modern day. Yep. You know you've got an old square TV. You've got video cassettes, And then underneath it says, well, it says 1986. Then, as, as you say, Lucy, it says Hands Across America, the, the charity campaign of 86. Then it cuts out of that to a scene in a fairground. And in that fairground, it puts underneath... 1986 and I'm thinking you're labouring the bloody point why are you doing this but come the end you understand why that point was laboured I understand some people have said that it does feel a bit repetitive in places and and you know it was kind of they're trying to hammer things home but it it does make sense once you get to the very end of the film you're right I think I think it is essential I quite like pacing but I quite like all of that kind of of aspect. But. Let's talk about that pacing because for the most part mm. you're right and Peel racks that tension up brilliantly. You've got the first confrontation in the house and uh, again, if you've got this far we've warned you there's spoilers. What the bloody hell are you doing here? But there are more <laughs> spoilers to come. So you've got that whole bit in the house where they escape from that, they get to the friend's house but the doppelgangers for them have already got there. Yep. They get out of that, they get into the car and then they meet you know, the daughter who's trying to get to them as well. So this tension is racking up. And then you get to Santa Cruz, and that's when you see the hands across America thing starting to come in. And you're thinking, what the bloody hell's going on? And he almost stops the film as they go underground into the passages, and there's more rabbits in this than the favourite. And I'm trying to work out where the hell all this is going. And he sort of stops the film for a long time while he gives you this whole backstory as to where these doppelgangers come from. And I thought... But you've lost me a little bit here. You know, I, I think to me it diffused tension. It, it it could have been cut down a bit there. What what are your thoughts? I agree. I think I'm one of these people that I love context. I love a sort of clear cut story and you know a clear cut reason. And I think there's a lot of fan theories about where the doppelgangers did come from because they tried to explain it, but I don't think it was as detailed as I was expecting it to be. And I still think there was a lot open for interpretation there. So yeah. that's one wish he could have done differently but you know I, I can appreciate it for what it is like it's not my film it's his film but that's one thing I would have done differently the pacing where it mattered like home invasion like it, it had all the ingredients for a classic home invasion horror really the suspenseful moments the use of music 
Uh, even the use of Amazon Echo that was quite funny and all like just little bits to sort of lighten mood. I think fundamentally it was it was good, but there were certain bits that I would have changed, sadly. Explanation of the doppelgangers is one of them. Yeah, let's let's go and talk about that because that sort of falls apart more as you look at it. So for the two people in the room that are never gonna watch this, the whole basis of the doppelgangers is it was an American experiment to create doubles of people that they could they then psychically link and could swap people over and control them. Yeah, you know, the more you look at it, it starts to fall apart. And what do you think of that, Lucy? I think it relies very heavily on its sort of symbolism and its metaphors and an actual concrete explanation. Yeah. And there's not anything necessarily wrong with that, but I can I have seen some negative reviews. I can appreciate why that would annoy people that don't like art house kind of metaphorical stuff may not resonate with that kind of ending, unfortunately. The kind of implication that Adelaide had been switched at the very end, you know, and, and the whole time she'd she'd been read and, and whatever, you know, that was kind of a bombshell to drop right at the end. Do you think it would have worked better if they'd not explained the doppelgangers? Probably. And that's a bit silly, but I think, you know, it would leave it open to even more fan theories. Yes. And I like about that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I love explanations, but I do think in this instance that you've come out with something that's pretty ropey here, Jordan. You should have left that one. Felt like half an explanation rather than a full explanation. Absolutely. And it's kind of like either give it to us or don't. And one of the things that always gets me in horror movies, uh, and it frustrates me in a lot of the classics, is they don't get the characterizations right. And in this, they did. You understood yeah. where every member. And did you think, uh, I, I certainly did, most of the male characters in this just piss me right off? Yeah. <laughs> you, you, yes. you got the father in the beginning who couldn't give a toss that his daughter had wandered off. Yeah. You, you've got the husband... And if he beat that boat one more time, I would have shoved the rudder where the sun wouldn't have shone. That's coming out. Yeah, right. But, you know, you got those characters. you got the other guy where his wife says to him, I think there's a noise outside, could you look? Well, no, not in the moment. I'm in my cosy spot. Sorry? (laughs) You know... Yeah, excuse me, don't do that. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's just... And it was annoying me. The whole basis, that most of the male characters, apart from the sun, I just thought were really annoying. Yeah, and I think that's kind of, it's good that he included that. I think Peel enjoys his sort of flawed characters, you know. They're supposed to be just any old family, you know. Sometimes you you don't think twice about these things. Like, I'm pretty sure if I said I heard a noise, I wouldn't assume it was my doppelganger, right? No, <laughs> yeah. no. It's one of those silly situations where you think, oh, it's nothing. It's just, a, it's just a bird or it's just a squirrel or something. And it's a key trope in horror films. For them to just brush that off, and then you're like, no, no, seriously, guys, come on, like, go and have a look. But I thought that the Josh character, funnily enough, was I hated him a lot. I thought he was so annoying, and I thought his death was fantastic. His doppelganger, how yes. he was killed with a, a flare on a boat <laughs> when he when he um, was banging on about how good his boat was. That that was very clever. I think I liked Winston Duke actually as the the dad in the in the main family. I liked I kind of liked him. I mean, he was a bit annoying, but he was probably the most likable out of all of them, I think. But, yeah, but even again, I mean, that bit with the boat, he, he became like a child when she said, well, I'm not going to go to uh, Santa Cruz, obviously because of what happened to her when she was a child, I don't want to go back there. And he went on like a little childish... And and that to get his wife to come around, and, and that annoyed me as well. And it's good that it annoyed me because that's the intent that he was going for. 
the way I describe it to a lot of people is that it wasn't what I was expecting, but it doesn't mean it's a bad film. My expectations, I did a podcast with um, with Cinemania where we discussed some theories. All of them were wrong. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that that's the kind of beauty of it, isn't it? It wasn't a spoon-feedy trailer, which I enjoyed. There's too many of those at the minute. Yeah. Yes. Too many like, oh, here's all the important scenes. You're like, oh. oh, why'd you do that? <laughs> yeah. The other thing that took me by surprise on that is you get it from the trailer as well. This is a home invasion story, so I, I, I expected that. They get away earlier than I thought they would, so you got the other family. And I thought, okay. That's good, this little settlement that's going on. And suddenly it expands to almost apocalyptical proportions outside of the events you're seeing. And I didn't expect mm. it to go there. I really didn't. So yeah. so uh, I was quite impressed by that. But one thing I haven't said yet, which I thought was amazing, was Michael Abel's score. I thought it was just tremendous. Oh. It was it was just the right amount of silence and diegetic and non-diegetic music and oh so so good. Yeah. Like that scared me the most, I think. You know, that really built the tension. That scene with I, I always forget character names, so I apologize. It's the, the teenage girl and her doppelganger when they're with the car. She's at one side of the car, she's at the other, one of them ducks down, the other one ducks down. And that music like builds and oh so good. Yeah, that had me on edge. <laughs> yeah. You're waiting for that inevitable jump scare, but then it doesn't necessarily happen. It's a very clever use of music. I thought yeah. it was great. So it's a really good film. I think Jordan Peele, definitely I'm now going to go back and watch Get Out, which I haven't seen. Uh, this is really assured. It reminded me a lot of a lot of the early John Carpenter, which I'm a huge fan of. I like the message he's trying to put across. I just felt he needs to be a little bit more B-movie, and let the political allegories speak for themselves. Maybe, you know, some of the stuff of Roger Corman needs to come in here. Less is more, I think. But that aside, this is a great film, and I'd highly recommend it. Lucy, what do you think? I agree with you on that. I think it's just, it's a stunning depiction of a kind of classic home invasion horror film. It's got the right amount of humour, the right amount of genuinely scary moments. The score is perfect. You know, the acting is double perfect because they're doing two different characters it's just it's a joy to watch honestly like you will be on edge <laughs> but you, you know if you're a horror fan you'll have a great time with this i think the only thing that let me down was the the origin story of the doppelgangers but i can i can let that slide given the strength of the rest of the film i would agree with you completely guys would you now watch it having listened to all of this absolutely oh, of course. not yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you would would you duh no oh, okay. well, lucy said it scared her. Yes, right. exactly. As a litmus test, that's just that's unbelievable. There were hints there, weren't there? <laughs> yes. That, there yeah, were... Just things to help us to yeah. decide. War is a universal language. I know a renegade soldier when I see one. Never occurred to me that one might come from above. Space Invasion, Big Car Chase, truth be told, I was ready to hang it up till I met you today. So, Skrulls are the bad guys, and you're a Kree, a race of noble warriors. Heroes. Noble warrior heroes. Your life began the day it nearly ended. We found you with no memory. We made you one of us. So you could live longer, stronger, superior. 
You were reborn. Wow, that clip almost makes a superhero film sound exciting. Shut up, Jeff. You wouldn't know excitement if you fell over it, especially as Captain Marvel starts with a very exciting action rescue sequence. On the distant planet of Hala, a team of Kree Star Force fighters are sent to rescue one of their own from their deadliest of enemies, the Skrulls. Our focus in this rescue team is Vers Brie Larson, a woman with no memory of her past, just strange, unsettling dreams. I know what she feels like. That's just like me after watching a Marvel movie. Or whenever I talk to you, Jeff. Anyway, back to the plot. The mission goes wrong and Verz is captured by the Skrulls. And after another thrilling action scene, see how this works, Jeff, Verz escapes and ends up on Earth in 1995. There she joins forces with S.H.I.E.L.D. agent Nick Fury. Samuel L. Jackson, to stop a Skrull's invasion. However, she also gradually learns that her own mysterious past is linked to our planet. I will stop there and say, please note that we are going to be discussing spoilers and plot twists for Captain Marvel, so if you haven't seen it yet, I would suggest leaving this for now. Graham, your thoughts on this film? Is it Marvel Universe starting to run out of ideas, or are their movies still very entertaining? Can I answer that? <laughs> no. No, definitely not. I thought it was really good fun. Overall, I liked it. It was really well-paced. Acting was good. Brie herself was excellent. Yes. And, and so was the chemistry between her and Samuel L. Jackson. The direction was tight and focused for the most part. Unfortunately, I feel the directors had their hands tied in that this movie had to deliver a lot of different and sometimes jarring elements. This movie was a massive juggling act for these directors. The old saying, you know, you can't serve two masters. These poor people had lots of masters. In addition to delivering the main story, uh, the directors had also to do a number of additional elements. All had to fit into two hours and yeah, five minutes like, running time. It's like putting together something with your hands tied exactly. behind your back. Exactly. It had to fit every so, yeah. piece of the puzzle. Exactly. They had to do the origin story. How did Carol end up in Star Force? They had to do Carol Danvers' self-discovery story and how she becomes her own person and free from Star Force. The Life on Earth story, the setup for Endgame, which also included how did Fury get that interstellar pager that he uses at the end of the Infinity Wars? Wow. And, and how did he lose his eye? How did that's, he lose his eye? And that's oh, a lot know. of words, guys. Can I just sum it up in one for you? No. no. Dull. <laughs> I thought it was fine. I mean, there's an awful lot to get done in this film, and it and it trundles along really, really, really well. I like the female empowerment story. I thought that was really good. I like the, the sort of the um, women sort of getting together and solving things. I like that. I'll just sum it up for you guys. Dull. <laughs> no. No, I thought it was really, really good. I mean, you're aware the whole time that this is a setup story. You know, yes. this is going to be I a was setup. up when I walked into oh, that bloody cinema. Oh, shush. Shush. Right, go back and watch your old Cornish musicals there. It's, you, um, I, you know, it had an awful lot of stuff to do. It uh, had an awful lot of uh, foreshadowing to do. It had a lot of setup to do. Um, the other only thing I don't really like, I don't like amnesia stories. They just seem to be such a lame MacGuffin. I wish I had that. <laughs> yeah, I thought, excellent. Um, from a comic book perspective... It was really well done. There were loads and loads of little things that I spotted from the comic books. However, 
poor old Captain Marvel suffers from the same fate as Superman. She is so powerful, it's really difficult to get somebody to stand up to her, you know, so she has to go off and take on cosmic beings. And it's very much the setup, and it's it's it maybe falls down a little bit there. I mean, it's, so, it's hugely entertaining. So you're saying I've just watched a two-hour advert? Actually, Jeff, that's not a bad point. There is so much leading into Endgame that it... I'm, it's not a two-hour advert, but there's certainly a 20 minutes of this are just setting up the next film, which is really, really a shame because I think she's great. I think you know if we well, if we move on to acting, yeah, let's let's talk about acting yeah. and and hopefully I can find something that just doesn't piss me off. I've got to admit, Brie Larson's really good. She's clearly having a great deal of fun with the role. She's really grasped it. The banter between her and Samuel L. Jackson's great. Well, even the ja- banter between her and Jude Law was pretty good. No, it wasn't. No? It was dull. It, no, it wasn't. It I wasn't th- bad. I thought Mendelssohn's character as well uh, that, yeah. was that, really that, good. That I will like give him. you, and spoiler alert here, because I watched Ben Mendelssohn appear in the film thinking, oh, here we go again. Ben Mendelssohn ben- cast as the villain. Villain, and yes. And they invert that, and that was really clever. That was the one bright idea in the film, other than casting Brie Larson, who's fantastic. Yes, absolutely magnificent. And it's yeah. one simple little thing, raising an eyebrow or blowing a wisp blowing of hair. hair Roger Moore of- did a whole career <laughs> of that, Neil. <laughs> yes, but she does it so well. She's it was a It was a pleasure to watch Brie her Larson. working with a, with, and having to do all the... Um, the uh, fight scenes as well and everything, and be cosmic being. Apart from Annette Bening, who was just wasted, Mm. but that's another... And Jude Law was wasted, I thought. I'm not a big fan of Jude Law, so, you know, I I thought he was okay. I think he he was acting as Jude Law. Well, (laughs) I disagree. I mean, you look at films like Cole Mountain or Talented Mr Ripley, he's tremendous in those films. I just think he's wasted in this film. I didn't. I thought he was just phoning it in at most parts of this one. I was really quite. Uh, well, to be honest, upset. if they offered me the money, I'd go into a superhero movie and phone it in. I thought everybody was having fun. It looked like in this yeah. film there wasn't any. She was having fun, and I think Samuel L. Jackson was having fun, yes. and I thought Mendelssohn was having fun. I thought the main character's acting was excellent. I thought the acting was really, really good. The acting by Brie Larson and Samuel L. Jackson was really good. Ben yes. Mendelssohn is passable, but let's go to where this really screwed up, and that's with the directors. Directors that were out of their depth. Everything is bland. I watched Avengers Infinity Wars to prepare for Endgame. I love that title, Endgame. I wish it was. Um, but I watched that again, and it's a tremendous film. Its pacing is brilliant. The Russo brothers know the ups and downs and that the old graph charts and out and make it move, bring in the right characters at the right time. Something these directors haven't got a clue about. They're indie filmmakers. They want to make this, like, charming romantic comedy. The Russo brothers are indie filmmakers as well. They were indie before they were given this. No, they weren't. They made Captain America. They've made two Captain America films. Before they went to Disney, they were indies. But they've made this, the Avengers is... Anyway, we can argue that till the cows come home. The fact is, these directors are out of their depth. But what they... As I said before, the... It was restricted. They had their hands tied behind their backs. They had to hit ho- so many points yeah. for oh. the end game as not to mess it up, not to do this, not to do that. You can't do this, you can't do that. It's, it's, it may, may wasn't be, easy. May I be so bold as to cut across you there, Neil? <laughs> oh, On Saturday, as you know, 
a couple of us went to um, an event with a director. And it was quite interesting that this director had made Marvel films. I went to this event with a Marvel director. And he was telling us that Marvel set you high standards and they expect you to subvert them. That way, you'll be invited back again. Now, he's made three, four things for Marvel. Great guy, by the way. But these won't be back. They're not good enough. I think they are good enough. But I think the problem here is that they didn't establish a style of their own. I think the Bowden and Fleck style didn't come out. So if you look at Ryan Coogler's Black Panther... You can take any shot still from that movie and you can go, yeah, that's Black Panther because that's the way it looks. That was bland as well. No, that wasn't bland. Was. If you look at Ragnarok, Thor Ragnarok's Taita Waititi's film, you can look at any shot from that and you go, yep, that's Waititi. Now, now, interestingly, you're picking up on one of my problems in the script, the fact that you can't watch this movie in isolation. No, and, and that is a problem. And, and I... I that, good God, I don't believe I'm going to say this. I'm agreeing with you because here we are, we're 20 films in. This is the 21st film in the MCU. Seems more. And there is so much baggage and they had to produce a film that had all that baggage in it or referenced it at least. And I still think they did a great piece of work and set up another film at the same time. Well, I must admit, I got confused at one point. This guy appears, I'm thinking... He was in Guardians of the Galaxy, and they killed him off in that. Why is he here? And that it's was just the 90s, Jeff. Didn't you spot the big blockbuster sign? I spotted it's all 90s, that. It's 90s, right? Why, and why Guardians he... of the Galaxy was when? In the 21st century. Was it? So there you go. See, uh, you're it's... old and confused. I understand. Yes. Yeah. It happens to us all, yeah. Have a, Time have for a your medication. <gasps> oh, you guys. <laughs> you're right, <laughs> I'll you? make you some hot chocolate. You can have a little lie down. What can I say? Oh, don't say anything. Don't say anything. That would be really good. That would be the For best. a change. I mean, by a long way. I mean... <laughs> Come on, then. What are your views on the script? I'll keep quiet now. I thought the script was very good. I thought the female empowerment story was a wee bit simple. I thought, you know, the fact that she was repressed in Star Force, yet uh, when she should have been the leader, she was a wasted talent. Doesn't that sound familiar to a lot of women? Again... I'm me in this podcast. <laughs> Again, they just tried to cram too much in. I'd have been very much happier with just a straightforward, here's her origin, here's how she got her powers, bang, off we go, without having all the other shenanigans. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's, it's a good way of um, setting her up for the next film. That's basically it, isn't it? Don't believe who your enemy is and all that sort of stuff. It's, um, it's a fairly simple film, but um, yeah. Simple is the right word. <laughs> oh, shush. Okay, so let's. I'm bored of talking about the script now. Let's talk about the visual effects. And I, I, I got a couple of comments here as well because I thought the de aging on Samuel L. Jackson was very good. That technology's got really good really but quickly. Clark Duncan. I don't think they did much work on that. I mean, no. Yeah, you can see that they have to put an awful lot of effort into this to get it right. And it worries me about the Irishman as well because an awful lot of that is going to depend on de aging of very famous faces. So we'll see when that film comes out as well. But I thought, yeah, Samuel L. Jackson he did looked look really good, good, didn't he? He did look good. It was very believable. <laughs> let, let's be fair, Samuel L. Jackson normally looks de-aged. You wouldn't think he's the age he is. That, that worked well, I thought. They, well, the, the big space fights and the battles and all were, were all... boring. Were all excellent. And no. come on, they, they've been doing this for 20 films. They've and got that's it why it's boring. There's no... They, the, they, the tonality, it was just all over the shop. It was just bland. 
I was nodding off. Even the score. I mean, you've got Silvestri's fantastic Avengers theme, which is about the only thing of note, and they play it in all the trailers now, yeah. and you're instantly recognisable. But Pina Toprek's score for this film was bland, like the film. Well, no, I thought... That the, I, I didn't hear much of the score because there was just so much other good 90s music. You snoring. I thought that the soundtrack was excellent. I thought the, the music they'd picked, some of it was a wee bit too on point, you know. Um, they played Just a Girl while she was in the middle of a big fight scene. I thought, yeah, okay, that's all right. Um, I did like the fact that she wore a Nine Inch Nails T-shirt for most of the film when she was on Earth, and yet there wasn't any Nine Inch Nails music in that. Trent Reznor of Nine Inch... Oh, Jeff, stop looking at me like I come from another planet. If it's the 90s, surely she should be playing, like, Spice Girls music. Oh, for God's sake. Here we go. Right, um, yeah, right. Of course she should. Trent Reznor has done some good film music. and he he, has. Bird When he does the things. score, he didn't do this score. He didn't though. do this score, and that's probably why none of his music appeared on the soundtrack. <laughs> he was yeah. really pissed off at Marvel. I thought the set dressing was okay. It didn't really feel very 90s to me. I thought no. they were just... I thought, oh, look, there's Street Fighter 2 in the arcade, and oh, look, um, you know, she's got a, a Game Boy and she's making a communicator out of it. And then by the time they got the Fonzie lunchbox... and Which the Nerf a 70s gun, reference yeah, on 90s. And the Nerf gun at the end, I thought, yeah, yeah, you're just digging stuff out of the props cabinet now. Yeah, Stop and then, it. And then the use of Radio Shack. And yeah, the Radio Shack was that. funny, yeah. That was good, yeah. Any listening comment? Hoping to move this on? Yes, Jeff, there are some listener comments. Been a few this month, actually, so somebody must have seen it. From Finn, friend of the show, Phil Foster, Captain Marvel brings a nice change of pace for Marvel films and is clearly important to them that this is the anthem for feminism. The action sequences are good. Told you, Jeff. There's plenty of humour and the effects are excellent. The de-aging effect employed in previous films is now faultless. No, it isn't. <laughs> in terms of performances, it's at its best when Larson and Jackson are on screen together. I think we all agree on that. Yeah. They had a great chemistry and it brings out a lot of humour. Another success for Marvel films. From Deck, we've got, I had low expectations going to see this, but was pleasantly surprised. Samuel L. Jackson is excellent. His best Nick Fury film, Brie Larson is good, and the sporting cast do not let it down. A few corny moments at the end, a good warm-up act for the final Avengers film. And from Paul, who is more in line with Jeff, is this a Welsh thing, Jeff? Captain Marvel, what a waste of film. Love you, Paul. <laughs> I don't think they use film. They, they don't use digital. film now, yeah. Yeah, but in Jeff's world back in the 50s, yeah, they do. <laughs> Sorry, okay. Paul. So it's a movie-length postscript to Infinity Wars, and as such, it's 100 minutes too long. <laughs> Ten minutes short would have been fine. <laughs> Ten minutes short. Yeah, that would have been excellent. The downward trend of Marvel continues. They've made four films in the last year, and only one's been any good. Black Panther, Ant-Man and the Wasp, and this are rubbish. Uh, only Avengers is good, but then that's because that's the main story. I love the feminist act aspect of this. Uh, no, I, I, I love the scene where um, Brie Larson, all through her life, is standing up against the um, obstacles that men put in her way and stands up and fights. I thought that was really good. You know, had that been in the 10 minutes of the film, it would have been brilliant. I've got to say, and from a feminist perspective, <laughs> it is odd to note. The only time she smiles in the film is when she's washing dishes. Lads, over to you. Well, that's when she finally finds out who she is. So, they, I mean, it's it's fun. It's 
got Brie Larson in it, who is fantastic. I love it's, Brie Larson. It's making a huge amount of money for Disney, and it's got Brie Larson in it. <laughs> She's better in 70 set films, actually. She was good in the... What's the gun? Free Fire, Free and, Fire. King Kong, and the King Kong Skull Island. Yeah, oh, yeah, she yeah. was excellent. Yeah, yeah. She yeah. Was both excellent. of them were 70 set films. I don't know, there's something about Brie Larson. I don't know what it is, but she's a very 70s actress. And I say that with all... I love the 70s. That's where I started watching movies. But she seems to fit into that milieu. Time for you to sum up then, Graham. Um, One thing did occur to me at the end of this movie. Jeff's right. (laughs) Strangely, no. As I've said all the way through this review, there's simply too much stuff in here. This is why I think that after Endgame, the MCU will reboot with a completely different set of characters. There really is too much baggage from 11 years and 20-odd movies. It's too much weight, and it starts to impact the shape of the movies. And the canon starts to restrict what can be done and what stories can be told. And this is why the comics are so weird and wacky and nobody dies and superheroes keep moving through other dimensions and backwards and forwards in time, the baggage accumulated over time just gets too much. So, in essence, this movie was great, but there was way too much stuff to be done. Maybe they need, at the end of Endgame, to bring in that Japanese woman who does the decluttering show on Netflix, Marie Kondo, and she just rolls up all the superheroes into tiny little roles and asks the audience if it still brings them joy. We could answer that. I know you could answer that. Please Jeff. don't. Please don't. Yep, I thought it was it was great. I really enjoyed it, and I can't wait for Endgame to see what she does it, and what she too. brings to that. So, if you enjoyed those films, uh, here are some more films with some powerful leading uh, women. Uh, Mad Max Fury Road with Char- Charlize Theron as Imperator Furiosa. Uh, Hidden Figures with Taraji P. Henderson as mathematician Katherine Johnson. Uh, Silence of the Lambs with Jodie Foster as FBI agent Starling. Aliens with Sigourney Weaver playing Ellen Ripley. And finally, Erin Brockovich, played by Julia Roberts. No. It's interesting to note, reading and that's a good list. But you haven't picked a superhero. Wonder Woman has been deliberately ignored. Is it a DC thing again? Are you joined Empire magazine? No, I no, haven't noticed. I, I would like to talk about Gal Gadot all day, Jeff. <laughs> Let's go on to movie of the month. Now, only one of us has seen all three films this month, so I think only one of us can really pick one. Oh. <laughs> no, no, Jeff, because you uh, automatically said that Us wasn't as good as Fisherman's Friends. So Correct. we start and with... And Fisherman's Friends is so movie of the month. So it's either Fisherman's Friends and or... Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel, and I think Captain Marvel. And I think Captain Marvel. 2-1. Our movie of the month is it's Captain Tim Marvel. Flaming <laughs> sports movie debate. Again, I'm robbed. <laughs> hmm. Okay. I like, I like the way he tried to hijack that. That was very funny. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's have some music and let's talk about what else we've been watching. Hopefully no more Flaming Superheroes. Most of the month has been spent watching Netflix and winning a golf competition, just saying. Oh, you had your hands on your stick for most of it then, did you? Was that the wood, Neil? Well, I'm not going to tell you that the bit that you hold on to is the shaft because that's just going to get worse and worse, isn't it? Um, Archer. It's okay, quite funny in places. It's entertaining, really. Um, and, and Pacific Heat, also on Netflix. It's weird because it's a complete Archer copy. 
except that it's a lot more non-PC. Well, it's Australian. Uh, and the critics trashed it, and it really isn't very good. But I laughed quite a lot. It's got a really strange sense of humour. And if you ignore the nonsense and listen hard, they talk extremely quickly, and there's no gaps between one talking and the other, so it's just a sort of... I re-watched all of Sherlock, the BBC version. Brilliant. Love and Death and Robots, which I know uh, Graham has watched. Well, um, I've only watched a couple of them, but uh, they're good, aren't they? Yes, they're interesting. very, very good. There's some really good and there's some good. Yeah. Um, I was quite impressed. Mowgli, Legend of the Jungle was interesting take on an oft-told story. Uh, I started watching Triple Frontier. Oh, no, you didn't. And stopped. Oh, right. Good man. It was okay-ish, <laughs> despite a great cast, Oscar Isaac, Ben Affleck, Charlie Hannum and more. Yes, it's a bit dull. And because Graham insisted, I watched several episodes of Bojack Horseman. And that go. Extremely funny. It's hysterical. Lucy recommends that. Yeah. And so does Phil. Yes, it's funny dealing with mental health issues. It's really quite disturbing. Okay, stand aside, guys. The grown-ups in the room. (laughs) For me, as always, cinema, TV and radio choices... Now, for cinema, fighting with my family. That was an at-the-flicks at uh, trip to the cinema it again, was, wasn't yeah. it? Based yeah. on a true story, directed by Stephen Merchant of The Office fame, featuring The Rock in a cameo, and it's about a wrestling family. Yep, even for a British movie, this is strange. <laughs> Yet somehow, it works. Thanks yeah. to some great performances, especially from rising star Florence Pugh, who we recently learned has joined the cast of Black Widow. Like Fisherman's Friends, it's another localised British feel-good feature. And like that film, this also works like a charm. Also, on the basis of sex, another true story, this time Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her rise to fame. Intelligent ideas within a standard biopic framework. This rises above that thanks to the power of the performances. How Felicity Jones was not nominated for her excellent performance, I do not know. I just wish there was a little bit more about the times it was set to give it a bit more context. And if you want a feminist feature, avoid Captain Marvel. Watch this one. It was good. Yeah. Yeah. Serenity. Written off by the film company long before I got to see it. Yet this noir movie from writer-director Stephen Knight is a really good feature. It has a great central performance from Matthew McConaughey and a twist so clever you never see it come in. How you respond to that twist determines how you relate to the last third of the film. For me, it robbed it of emotion, even though it still kept my interest. An oddity, to be sure, but one well worth seeking out. Didn't this get panned? Yes, it did. It got absolutely panned by the critics. Sadly, uh, that, because it's well worth a look at. I mean, Stephen Knight, who, of course, is the creative force behind... Peaky Blinders, Blinders yeah. and also Hummingbird. He wrote the script for Hummingbird, oh, Jason Statham film, okay. and also um, Locke. He wrote and directed that, the Tom Hardy film, oh, right. set entirely in a car on yeah. a journey. Great. And, and this is up there. You know, he's experimenting again. I, I think it's great. Now, on TV, I watched um, season one of The Passage. It's a vampire series based on the Justin Cronin series. This first series covers about a third of the first book. Gets off to a slow start and in many ways mirrors Guillermo del Toro's series, The Strain. And just look how poorly that ended. This gathers pace as it continues and it's very tense and exciting in the last few episodes. The final couple of minutes pulls off a clever twist and I hope to see how that continues in season two. Finally for radio, Death at the Desert Inn. Now, true story, 
in the 1950s, Noel Coward was offered a very lucrative $35,000 a week successful engagement at a Las Vegas nightclub. For this fictionalised comedy drama set during that period, the very British Noel and the very American Judy Garland get caught up in a murder mystery involving a large sum of money, corrupt politics and the mafia. It's highly entertaining with wonderful performances from Malcolm Sinclair as Noel Coward and a great cast. Well worth seeking out if you can find it. No, that sounds brilliant. Mm. I'll have to give that a look. For me this month, I have TV and uh, some movies. Starts with the movies. Uh, this month I've watched Peppermint on Amazon Prime in the UK. It's a 2018 American vigilante action thriller directed by Pierre Morel and starring Jennifer Garner. It's a poor man's Punisher, really. And uh, just like the Punisher, Garner character Ripley North sees her family gunned down in front of her. She gets no support from the police in catching the killers and goes off the grid for five years to learn how to be an assassin, really, and becomes a weapons expert. So that old chestnut. It's OK. It's not great. There are some good moments in it. The way she uses social media during the final showdown with the men who are responsible for the death of her family is clever, if only the rest of the movie was that smart. I'm working on a podcast short. Uh, about Marvel's cinematic universe and I'm working my way through all of the MCU movies starting with the 2008 Incredible Hulk movie and then I'll... fantastic. Can I be involved please? And <laughs> thank you Jeff. And I watched the three Thor movies uh, The Dark World, um, the original Thor and, and Ragnarok. Uh, the Incredible Hulk is not great and the CGI is very ropey in parts. I can see why they changed the actors from Edward Norton to Mark Ruffalo. Norton plays the character way too intense and it's well documented that on set he was a bit of a dick. I much prefer Ruffalo's more laid-back portrayal of Banner and it contrasts well with the Hulk smash alter ego. I could not see Norton playing this happy, fun banner in Ragnarok, for example. The three Thor movies are great and work very well together as a trilogy. Chris Hemsworth's development into a true leader from youthful hothead is very well paced across all three movies. I'd forgotten how funny he is. On TV, I've been watching as, as Neil said earlier, I've been watching Love, Death and Robots. This is a Netflix in the UK. Very adult, very adult animation anthology from the creative minds of Tim Miller and David Fincher. It's a collection of 18 short animated stories ranging in time from about 7 minutes to 17 minutes. They're all sci-fi and fantasy. A little reminiscent of the Twilight Zone and they're very hit and miss. But out of the 18, there are five that really stood out to me. There's Suits, which is hysterically oh, I, funny I've, I've seen that one that it was is really good funny. isn't it yeah. farmers defending their community from alien monsters using mechs yes. it's just superb <laughs> cartoon animation there's good hunting which is an excellent combination of kung fu demon hunters and steampunk beautiful fluid an animation and a little reminiscent of Studio Ghibli style Helping Hand. Well, this was a bit of a surprise. It's a wonderful story in a sort of Arthur C. Clarke tradition of setting up a problem that can only be solved by the application of physics. In this case, Newton's third law of motion is used in the most painful way possible. Not for the squeamish, that one. The Lucky 13 is the next one. It's brilliantly realised story of a troop's transport aircraft that gains a level of self-awareness and bonds emotionally with its pilot. A fantastic CGI animation. And then 
a real joy for me uh, by one of my favourite authors, a British sci-fi author by the name of Alastair Reynolds, is Zima Blue, a very cool animation about a famous artist's search for his inner muse. Didn't see the twist coming. Really, really good. Oh, and I've also been watching Star Trek. A lot of Star Trek, actually. Um, I'm still pushing forward with season two of Star Trek. Just watched episode 10. This really got good very, very quickly. Spock's back, and it's really excellent. I've also started watching Star Trek Enterprise. That's the only Star Trek series I missed when it came out originally in 2001. The show is set before the events of Kirk and Spock in 2150, and they've not even invented star dates then. It's wow, how did I miss this? <laughs> it's very hard getting into it, but the fact that everything is clunky and clockwork um, was a bit of a challenge, but the writing is very good and the cast are, are not bad. Uh, it's got an overarching story called the Temporal Cold War, and that's what keeps you pulling you back in rather than the planet, planet of the week procedural stories. Currently... Uh, I'm on season one, episode 15. Only 53 more shows to go, Jeff. You know, you can join me watching this. Oh, yeah, I, I will. <laughs> yes, yeah. That Star Trek show is on Netflix in the UK. Right, Neil, over to you for some listener comments. So that is what we've been watching this month. What have you, the listeners, been catching up with? So let's go stateside to talk to Nick. Hi, Nick. How are you doing? I'm well, how are you? I'm very well, thank you very much. What have you seen recently, or what has caught your imagination recently and on television and in the cinema? Well, in movies, I recently saw Captain Marvel and Alita Battle Angel. All right. Um, what do you think of both of them? They were both excellent movies, um, very action-oriented. Captain Marvel more so than... Uh, development-oriented. Alita, I think it was a good origin story for a story and less an origin story for the character. Yeah, I agree, yeah. I thought it was um, a bit overplayed out. It was a bit um, drawn out. I had a lot of problems with the initial little bit, you know, so 300 years ago she was a super warrior. Had she really been sat in that junk pile for 300 years? It's yeah, it doesn't really explain that right to your face, but it gives you enough room to kind of think and imagine like I wonder if this is what happened or that. She was definitely from that era, but I think from what I gathered, and it's important to know that you're going to gather different things than I have uh because that's <laughs> the way the story is structured, that she was probably destroyed or decommissioned 200 or so years ago but only dumped into that junkyard recently. Okay. I thought the, the battle sequences, the fight sequences, all of that was excellent. But I thought that the end where her uh, love interest, the guy on the, uh, on the super cool motorbike, I thought when he became an automata as well, he had a proper human face stuck on the front of, of the robot body, and that jarred a bit with me. I thought it was okay, not great. But uh, Jeff on our show hated it. Well, uh, her love interest, um, Hugo. Yeah, that's him. He had, in my opinion, zero redeeming qualities. <laughs> Period. 
he was arguably a negative influence on Alita, though he helped her discover a little bit more of her humanity and, and her own personality. That's basically all he did for her. He lied. He was a poor love interest. He seemed to be quite for himself um, all the way up until the end when he was climbing up that rope cable thing and ignoring everything she was saying. I, I don't know. I don't think he added anything to the story uh, in a positive way. He was yeah. just a bad influence on her. He gave her some sort of drive to be more independent. But yeah, it was definitely her story. And I don't think anybody was really shedding a whole lot of tears for him after he fell. Yeah. What did you think of Rosa Salazar's motion capture performance? Absolutely. Fantastic. Yeah, I thought so. She looked like the the closest thing to a CGI character that you your brain is tricked into thinking there's an actually an actor in front of you and your brain is like why are her eyes so big but uh <laughs> it's um it's they've done such wonderful things with the with the um the motion capture and the animation and also by making all of the other largely cybernetic characters in the movie so outlandish and different looking they looked like uh, rejects from a Transformer movie um, <laughs> that she had a lot more normality when you saw her and that kept that, you know, sort of it rides the line between um, her being a real actress and her being animated. I thought her performance was so good and, and stood out so much that some of the other characters really fell by the wayside. I thought Christopher Waltz as uh, Dr. Ido, um, her sort of father figure, and Jennifer Connelly, they were sort of in the shadow of of her by quite some measure, really. I thought that particularly Jennifer Connelly, who's a really good actress, um, I thought she had nothing to do. And Mahershala Ali was even worse. I mean, he's, a, he's now an Oscar winner, but I, I thought he had very little to do. I, I agree. I think they were underwritten. Mashahal Ali, Jennifer Connelly, Christopher Waltz, um, all underwritten. And uh, I loved Jackie Earl Haley as Gruishka, the, the, the big yeah, villain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, um, he plays that role well. He's, he plays a good monster. Um, but yeah, overall for Alita Battle Angel, I think that, um, if people go into it, not thinking that it's a origin story for the character of Alita and more of an origin for her story going forward, then they will be a lot happier watching it. Yeah. Okay. Right. So you also saw Captain Marvel. I think it, um, I think it was necessary, obviously, because the introduction of Captain Marvel into the Avengers arc, it required a little bit of storytelling so people know who Captain Marvel is. Uh, just like every other Avengers character, there are a library of books on her as an actual character in comics. So there's a lot to be told, and given feature film length, not a whole lot of time to tell it yeah. while still maintaining people's attention. So I think in that endeavor, they did well. I think they had classic use of the uh, uh, flashy Avengers combat and action scenes. But my one big gripe is that the character development was entirely used on 
Nick Fury. We saw him grow from being just a regular agent who didn't believe in aliens to the beginning of the Avengers Initiative and S.H.I.E.L.D. as we knew it. So that was really fun to watch. But I'm sorry, but Captain Marvel started and ended as the same person, just stronger. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It was... Oh, it was so frustrating. It was so frustrating to watch. They have to put so much stuff into the movie to make it all relevant to the MCU and the backstory and where she came from and the meeting with Nick Fury and all of that stuff. This film felt to me, although I really enjoyed it, I thought it was great, it felt just it had so much baggage. And I suppose after 20 movies and 10 years uh, of the MCU, there is an awful lot of baggage and they just seem to pack it all into this. Never really let um, her character develop as fully as I would have hoped for. Yeah. It's certainly a setup movie. Oh, it definitely is. It has its place. It's not so much a setup movie like Captain America was because Captain America was just a brilliant story. Yeah. Um, it's not a uh, setup movie like Iron Man was because Iron Man was a brilliant story, but those all kind of stand on their own where this one needs to have a movie after it for you to care what happens with Captain America. She just flies off into the sunset with the Skrull. First of all, anybody who's actually read any of the comics or seen some parts of the movies know that the Skrulls are not great people. No, um, no, they're, they're not. They're in a really bad position in this movie, so they, they needed help and they got it. But also, I liked the inclusion of uh, Ronan the Accuser. I thought Brie Larson was great. I loved the way she was constantly fighting with her hair and her little eyebrow raises when she's being uh, funny. I thought all of that was charming and really good. I want to see her go up against Tony Stark, because that will be an interesting... Um, Absolutely. I completely agree. I can't wait to see um, more of her interactions with the, the strong personalities of the Avengers because she has a very strong personality. It's really yeah. strongest trait. Did you see the little teaser trailer of her interacting with Thor? Yes. Yeah, that was wonderful. And Thor just says, I like this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, they, they're both, you know, they're gods essentially yeah. she's yeah, she's never known defeat he's he understands the mindset of never knowing defeat although he suffers it many times in his movies but he he's a winner and she's a winner and they are going to have a lot of back and forth i see yeah and, definitely um, along with tony stark who has the biggest personality in the universe um, <laughs> yes that's that's going to be it's going to be it's going to be very um very exciting to watch uh, her integrate while still being the new person, though they don't really, as they've demonstrated in Infinity War, they don't have trouble uh, integrating these personalities. When they threw the Guardians in, it worked very well. Yeah, I, I was surprised how well that wor worked. Um, of course, as they moved out into space, I could see the Guardians getting involved and it became more of a cosmic comic rather than a, a more grounded down-to-earth Marvel adventure. Yeah, I, I can't wait to see the whole thing take off in the last one. Although, you know, I'm quite worried about Endgame. It needs to be about three hours long to get all of the stuff sorted out. So we'll, well see. Well, Really? Because it is, has, a, has a reported runtime of three hours and two minutes. Oh, wow. Oh, great. Oh, well, that's, that'll be fun. Okay, Nick, anything else you've seen that you've been really impressed with recently, either 
Um, yes, I've just finished a series, actually. Um, the most recent season of True Detective. Oh, yes. With, again, uh, Mahershala Ali in yes, that one. The, the incomparable Mahershala Ali, who honestly deserves all of the awards for his <laughs> performance in this show. Because I've never seen an actor so well portray three completely different time periods in a man's life with them being so vastly different. Yeah, I, I know um, my colleague Jeff has been singing the praises uh, of this series. So uh, what did you enjoy about it? Well, it's cut very well. The editing is brilliant. Um, it's seamless in going th between these three different time periods, and it goes back and forth throughout every episode. It doesn't really hold your hand through all of them to explain, like, okay, now we're in 1990, now we're in, uh, you know, 1999. It just, with visual cues within seconds, you gather exactly when the scene is taking place, and that, I think, keeps you more engaged than any other technique because you're you're not really figuring it out you're intrigued now like oh they've moved time periods we're going to learn something new there's also when you talk about i don't want to use the term tra time travel but when you have different time periods and one of them is in the far future you reveal a whole lot right away about the story that's happening in the past like whether or not a case was solved or they found a person that seems like it would be a problem in something that's like True Detective where there's mystery to it because you know, oh, well, I guess they never found her. The mystery unraveling the entire time on what actually happened is still so gripping that it's hard to look away. Oh, brilliant. Okay. All right. Well, it's it's still on my list of things to watch. So much things to watch. And Jeff's like, he's like a recommendation engine. You know, every time you see him, you get like four or five more things to recommend. Then we have another uh, guy, who Phil, and he's has his own blog called Phil the Bear's movie review site. And he is just as bad as Jeff at recommending films. And he also recommends comics as well, which is dangerous because you end up buying like know six graphic novels in a go and that can be expensive so yeah i have several graphic novels to pick up and and finish okay nick well thank you very very much that's been wonderful um thank you very much for taking your time to give us uh, your overview of uh, things that have caught your attention over the past month and we'll talk to you again soon thanks very much nick thank you for having me on you're welcome Thanks, Graham, and thanks, Nick. Now, let's go closer to home and let's catch up with Rich. How are you, Rich? Yeah, hi, Jeff. I'm good. What have you been watching this month? We'll start with talking about Star Trek, shall we? Go OK, I will hand you over to Graham for this because he's watching it as well. Uh, I'm enjoying it. What about you? Yeah, brilliant. Great. Um, <laughs> absolutely love it. Uh, the first, I won't talk about the first season because I think you should just, be, you know, if anybody's not watched it, then just do it. So um, is, is this with Kirk and that lot back in it that shows how much I know on this? No. No, no. I mean, essentially, um, it's set in 2225. Uh, so for a bit of reference, Next Generation was set 2365. Um, so it's like set before Next Generation, kind of after the Enterprise. And it's, it's kind of weird. It's got some things where it shouldn't be in there. Essentially, the main character 
Michael Burnham. Um, he's played by Sonequa Martin Green. I think that's the girl from Orange is the New Black. Uh, she's really good as a character. Essentially, she's the adopted sister of Spock, but she's human, and so she's got like these Vulcan tendencies. Anyway, that just puts, I guess, the character into play, and and, and she, I think she's excellent as a as a main character because she does have these human emotions, a bit like Spock does. Um, so you you see that in him. Is this standalone episodes like the original Star Trek, or is it? No, no, it's definitely got story to it, and it's quite in depth actually. And there's small little off plots that that come into play, but essentially the discovery is a ship, and it's got like a weird spore drive where they're using intergalactic mushroom spores to be able to jump through space and end up anywhere. So it's become quite a powerful vessel. It's really interesting. The characters are quite cool. There's a, there's a, a main guy called Saru, whose species has essentially evolved to be scared of everything. So they're, they're hyper aware and, and it is, he makes quite a cool character. He becomes captain of uh, the Discovery at some point, and he's an interesting-looking creature as well, really tall. But it, it's it's fantastic. I, I, yeah, just just give it a go. Yeah, I, I'm. I must admit, I I've enjoyed it. There's a lot more action and a lot more plot in this this one than the first one. I thought that the Klingons were getting a bit annoying in the first one, although I didn't see the big twist coming, and I thought that was brilliant. But I like the the whole take on the Klingons, the way they look. Yeah. Uh, at first, I, 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 weird why they've made them look so different. But actually, you, you, I don't know if you watched the most recent episode, but one of them had hair and he looked a, a lot more uh, like Klingons that we perhaps know. Yes. Yeah. Um, but the director, prob- he, he said that he wanted to make people aware that the Klingons were very different from what you had seen before because they were essentially like a different faction. They worshipped a different leader. Um, they had nothing to do with the Klingons in the main sort of story, so that's why they look different. Um, it makes sense, really. I guess, same with Burnham's relationship with Spock, you never heard about that in any of the films or any of the earlier stuff, about him having a, a sister that he grew up with. To be honest, she should have. So they kind of tiptoe around it, and at the moment, we're chasing down Spock in the series, so hopefully yeah. some answers. But, um, I like the way they introduced Spock's mother first, and then we got a much clearer idea of what the relationship was between Spock's adopted sister and and Spock's mother and Spock himself. Yeah, and to answer Jeff's question, although there are episodes, there is a major plot going through this and a couple of off plots as well, which all feed in together. So it's very well written. I've got great hopes for it as well. I'm really back on the old Star Trek bandwagon. So from the sound of what you've both been saying... This is on Netflix, but they haven't dropped all the episodes at once, then? No, it's weekly. No. Okay. All right. Yeah, which is frustrating, but actually quite good, because it makes you think about the episode that just went before. And maybe we lose that now, watching binge episodes. So, What else have you been watching, Rich? Now, I didn't know the reviews of this until after I'd watched it, but I watched Polar on Netflix, uh, and it got slated on Rotten Tomatoes. It's got, like, 22%. So, Isn't it meant to be like a poor man's John Wick? I kind of had it like Sin City lock stock. Oh, wow. Okay. Right, now I'm intrigued. Um, What's it about? Okay, so it is actually taken from a graphic novel written by a guy called Victor Santos. It's around one main character. He's known as the Black Kaiser. His his name's Duncan Vizsla, and he's like a 49 and a bit year old assassin. And uh, he's quite a cool character. He's played by a guy called Mads Mikkelsen. It was actually that Cassilius, I think, 
in Doctor Strange, the one yeah. bad guy. Yeah, he anyway. was, he, was, he also played uh, Hannibal Lecter on TV. Oh, right, okay, I've not seen that. I like him as an actor, he's quite good in this. He plays like a Russian character, his accent, and smokes a lot. He's quite tough. He wants to retire. I can't give too much of it away if people want to watch it, but the idea is these assassins pay into a pension fund and the head of the company pays them like a, a decent pension at the end, but they have to retire at 50 and they get 50% of their pension paid up front and then 50% paid off through the rest of their life. And it's around about 16 million. So it's a fair chunk they get on their 50th birthday. And the interesting thing was that head bad guy was actually paid, played by Matt Lucas, like George Dawes. All um, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. I don't, he was that well out of place in the film, I don't know. But he was he was funny in it, I guess. If he hadn't have been in it, it would have made the film a lot better for me. Uh, but I like him, but, you know, not, not, a, not a head bad guy for me. He was too comical. So despite um, the bad reviews, you liked it? I did, yeah. I mean, why not? It was... I like to see more graphic novels and mangas converted into films. I know we've got Akira coming up. I think maybe we need to tap into some of this stuff because some of it's quite interesting. Like, I don't know if you watch any mangas, but yep. recently I watched on Netflix Full Metal Al- Alchemist, which is, you know, it's a it's Japanese. Yep. Got to watch it dubbed. That's on my <laughs> list as well. Yeah, I'm really... It's brilliant, mate. Yeah, yeah, you'll love it. It's great. I, I mean, I mean, you have to excuse... Uh, the the poor dubbing, but it kind of adds to it for me whenever I watch a film like that. I think it's awesome. But the story, I I, I hadn't heard of it before, so watch the film and 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 it was good. So yeah, you'll you'll enjoy that, mate. But I, I I digress. Yeah. So polar, I see films differently perhaps than some critics, but I was entertained all the way through. Thought the characters were good, apart from George Dawes, he ruined it. But everything else, <laughs> it was all right. <laughs> Any anything else you've been watching? A Russian Doll, which is basically, it wasn't great, it was okay, but it was a like a multiverse Groundhog Day sort of thing. The sort of cast was a woman called Natasha Leone. She was like from American Pie. She's actually also in Orange is the New Black, funnily enough. I, th- um, I thought she was good. I didn't think that the, the actual show was that good. I thought she was good. I thought some of the lines she delivered were excellent. But, yeah, it went off really, really quickly. I got about, I don't know. I was frustrated, weren't you? Like, sometimes it was yes. like, oh, can we just skip this episode now? Yeah. And the yeah. idea was okay, and then some questions, like, popped up. And, I, I mean, it was, yeah, it was, was okay. I would give it an okay. That would be about it. No, you're a bit um, more generous than me. I, I, I gave up after about I don't know four episodes in. I thought, oh, okay. no. See, I, got, I had to find out what was happening, so I did watch, watch it all. Um, so perhaps more stubbornness than anything else, but um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've got to be more stubborn with my TV. That's a good motto. I like that. <laughs> you start until you finish. That's all. Yeah. Thing. Uh, also, I, look, I mean, it's not really the sort of thing you guys do, but podcasts, YouTube, Joe Rogan. I don't know if any of you watch any of them, but I'm a big fan personally. And 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 recently, he's had a few interviews with Brian Cox, physics professor. Yeah, and um, listening to those two chat about you know Joe Rogan is quite a normal guy, but it's quite interesting to listen in, listening to how he talks to Brian Cox about things. It's, it's that's quite cool. And he also uh, he did an interview with you know Silent Bob, Kevin Smith. He yeah. had a heart attack recently, and he he, he chatted to uh, he chatted to Joe Rogan about his heart attack, and that's a really interesting interview. So that's one to watch, I think. So what's this guy's um, hook on his interviews then? He just sort of chats to random people. But, you know, Joe Rogan's kind of renowned for being controversial and, you know, he, he thinks outside the box. He's 
pro UFO, that sort of thing, pro conspiracy. Oh, we got um, Neil. He, he, <laughs> well, he spends a lot of time researching it, you know, and sometimes I think it's a load of rubbish, but when he actually gets these quite big names to conversation are interesting and you do learn a little bit. Brian Cox is awesome. I love him. But, so, you know, if he spoke called? to Brian Cox about UFOs, I bet that was a very short conversation. <laughs> it was uh, interesting. He speaks about what he thinks is in the universe and his take on, on life. He gives a one to two civilization per galaxy. For, for him to say that, I was surprised because he's saying times that by how many galaxies there are and you're in for a big shock for me to think that. What's this podcast called? It's Joe Rogan. Just it's just his name. Okay, right. Yeah, Joe Rogan on on YouTube. Essentially, he's got a channel, and he just talks to people, and, and each one is filmed. The podcast is available, but you can you can also watch the films, uh, the videos as well. Have a look at that. Okay, right. That's another one I'll have a look at. Rich, take, I realise what the time is. Right? We're taking up a lot of your time here. Just got time to talk about The Witcher, perhaps? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Day, no, no, but... no, you go for it, right? Yeah, sorry, yeah. What, what, what do we think? Um, I mean, I doubt you're that excited about it, are you, Jeff? Seems it is a like a, a, a game, but I've actually been trying to get into the novel and listen to the audiobooks of The Witcher. So there's, the, there's the original three Polish ones... Um, I'm on Blood of Elves at the moment. Okay, yeah. right. Okay, that's poss- um, possibly the best one I think. But is it, are we, what are we you... talking about? I'm lost. <laughs> okay, so it's, it's Andre Andre Sapkowski or Sapkowski, something like that. Yeah, that's how uh, I pronounce it. Yeah. He's, a, he's an author, Polish author, uh, wrote awesome books called The Witcher, which was adapted into a video game. That's where I know it from, and it's fantastic. But anyway, come come into like where it's going with The Witcher that. Henry Cavill from Superman, he basically is going to play the main lead, uh, Geralt. And that's one of the reasons apparently he wasn't going to play Superman anymore. Anyway, it, it looks it looks so far, it looks really, really interesting. So I thought I'd, I'd try and get my my sort of backstory on it by reading the books or listening to them at least. I am finding it a bit hard going, though. They're, they're kind of like, oh, no, where's that elf sort of thing? Do you know what I mean? It's, uh, I, I don't know. It's a bit different from what I'm usually used to, so I need to perhaps adjust my ear to listen to it, but I will give them a go. Blood of Elves is uh, interesting so far, so there we go. So I'm, it, I'm just hoping that Netflix do the series series wonderful. I was just going to say for, really for Jeff and probably for some of our listeners, so this Polish writer produces three fantasy books, a games developer then used that as the basis of the Witcher game. And the, you wouldn't think, yeah, here's an obscure Polish fantasy writer, and but the games were so brilliant. My characters in the games where people really identified with them. And there's a, there's a couple of female characters in the game who are really, really strong and go in with the sort of Me Too movement of strong female leads and that sort of things. The whole series and the whole world building is fantastic. When they said they were going to make a series and it had Henry Cavill as the lead, I just went, oh, yes, this is going to be brilliant. I can't wait to see what they do with this. So I'm really stoked for this. Yeah, there's a little bit of leaked footage, isn't there? Just as him looking. Oh, I haven't you know, seen standing. that. I haven't seen that. It's just him standing there as Geralt, and that's it. But it's worth looking at, and it's like a taste. I know they haven't even cast, um, like, Siri and Yennefer. They haven't been cast yet, so I, I, I don't know who they'll get to play them. Hopefully, like, some not super known names, because that would be good to give someone else a go. Maybe yeah. find some, some new new blood. But anyway, there we go. I'm quite interested in that, so hopefully we'll uh, get to talk about that. It says 2019. I still don't think it'll be out this year. Not a chance. Not a chance. No. 
Okay. No, maybe 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 January next year. Well, that'll be something for us to talk about in a future episode. Yeah, definitely. Rich, really appreciate your time. Thank you no very much indeed. Thanks, yeah, Rich. Awesome. We'll do it again. Okay, yeah, thanks, guys. I'll Cheers, see you Rich. soon. Thank you, then. Cheers, right. As for next month, Neil will be reviewing Hellboy. Jeff will be reviewing Shazam. Under sufferance. But you'll be watching it anyway. And Graham, oh, and it just pleases me so much to say this, is reviewing Dragged Across Concrete. Ah! No! Let me take your line, Neil. And he will be, along with Jeff, if this film isn't any good. I'm not expecting much. <laughs> anyway, let's get on with the most exciting part of the show. Jeff being upstaged by Lucy again. No, Neil, the classic quiz. <laughs> As a recap, here's last month's quiz with the answers. Here are the questions built around the Oscars. These three films have won the top five Oscars, film, actor, actress, director and script. You had to name all three. They are... It happened one night. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. And Silence of the Lambs. Which two Best Actor Oscar winners refused to accept their awards? George C. Scott. And Marlon Brando. Two actors won the Best Actor Oscar for playing the same character, but in different films. Who were the actors and what character did they play? Marlon Brando and Robert De Niro playing Don Corleone in the Godfather films. And finally, who hosted the Oscar award shows the most number of times? Bob Hope. OK, now, following on from the recent sad passing of Jan Michael Vincent, we have four questions about his career. How much were you an expert on this actor? So let's go through them. Number one. One of Jan Michael Vincent's first film roles was as a trainee assassin. What was the film? Number two. In which film did he star alongside Kim Bassinger and Daryl Hannah? Number three. In the film Big Wednesday, Jan Michael Vincent, along with friends Gary Busey and William Catt, were famous for their ability to do what? And finally, number four. Mr Vincent was at one time the highest paid actor on TV. What series was this payment for? Good luck and answers next time. So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another At The Flicks is in the can, so it only remains for us to say... Off to take some pills and get ready for that superhero shit after review next month. Try taking 30 or more of those pills, Jeff. No idea what Jeff is complaining about. Look what I have to watch. <laughs> <laughs> and to everyone else... Thanks, Thanks for, for listening, listening and, and goodbye. goodbye. <laughs> okay, that's a wrap. Creep on in, on Thank mm-hmm. you.